In this episode of Flying Smarter, I'm looking at airport codes and how they work. Then, for the main segment, I'll be talking about airport runways. Welcome to episode 35 of Flying Smarter, the podcast that explores the fascinating world of air travel to help you become a smarter and savvier traveler. Let's get started. In episode 33, we talked about airport codes. Now what about airline codes? Firstly, a reminder on IATA and ICAO. IATA is the International Air Transport Association, and it's a global trade organization for airlines. It facilitates coordination and standardization throughout the airline industry, publishing things like standards and policies, organizing slot conferences to help airports and airlines coordinate slots, and of course, assigning airport codes. On the other hand, ICAO is the International Civil Aviation Organization. While IATA is a trade organization, ICAO is actually a United Nations body. It serves as a forum for various governments to coordinate international civil aviation. Now, just like how they do with airports, both IATA and ICAO also assign codes for airlines. And also like they do with airports, IATA codes are shorter than the ICAO ones. Their respective purposes for the two types of codes are also similar with what we see with airports. IATA assigns two character codes to airlines. These codes are used largely for functions that you as a passenger will see. In the same way that your bag tag will have a three-letter IATA code, it will likely also have a two-character IATA airline code followed by your flight number. Two-character IATA codes also appear on boarding passes and departure screens, just to name a few examples. There isn't really a clear-cut method for assigning IATA airline codes. Airlines that have been around for a while tend to have codes that are clearly derived from their name. Air Canada has AC, United Airlines has UA, and British Airways is BA. With these airlines, you'll see flight numbers like AC-346, UA-1879, and BA-12. Now, these flights are also ACA-346, UAL-1879, and BAW-12 because the airlines also have three-letter ICAO codes, but we'll talk about that later. So older airlines tend to have IATA codes that resemble their names, but there are some exceptions. All Nippon Airways, for example, is a major well-established Japanese airline. Its IATA code is NH, which reflects its beginnings as a Nippon helicopter. Now, with two characters, there's only so many combinations. That's why newer airlines tend to get IATA codes that are seemingly more random, including ones with numbers in them. JetBlue, for example, is B6, and EasyJet UK is U2. So with these airlines, you'll see flight numbers like U2 Flight 1051 or B6 Flight 1496. There are also some airlines that have the same IATA code. IATA will designate one of these as a controlled duplicate and use an asterisk to designate it. For example, the IATA code 7C is assigned to Jiju Air, a South Korean low-cost carrier. At the same time, it is assigned to Coin Airways, a small cargo airline based in London. It's unlikely that these airlines and their flights would cause confusion given that they serve very different markets. On the other hand, ICAO's three-letter airline codes are mostly used by pilots and air traffic controllers. You'll also see them on flight tracking websites like FlightAware. When entering flight plans into aircraft computers, these are the codes that will be used. Some ICAO codes closely resemble the airline name and IATA code. 
American Airlines has AA and AAL, and Air France has AF and AFR. Some airlines have ones that are quite different though. Emirates's IATA code is EK, but its ICAO code is UAE. Southwest Airlines' IATA code is WN, but its ICAO code is SWA. Did you know that there's a secretive airline that flies to Area 51? There's an airline known as Janet that flies employees to various government military facilities. Janet is based out of a private terminal at Las Vegas' Harry Reid International Airport. Their unmarked Boeing 737 jets are a common sight at the airport. The aircraft are painted white with a red line along the fuselage where the windows are. The planes are owned by the United States Air Force but operated by a contractor. Now, naturally, there's a lot of secrecy around the airline, including its schedules and destinations, but some details are publicly known, including the fact that passengers are military personnel and contractors, and that the destinations include places like Groom Lake, also known as Area 51, and Edwards Air Force Base. A mile of highway will take you a mile, but a mile of runway will take you anywhere. This is one of my favorite aviation quotations. It reflects the wonder of flight and how it really changed the world for humans. And the runway is arguably the most important part of an airport. You could technically board a plane without a terminal, and you technically don't even need an apron or a taxiway if you board a plane on the runway. But without a runway, a plane isn't going anywhere. In this episode, I'm going to take a look at runways, helping you better understand this key piece of aviation infrastructure that plays an essential role in your air travel experience. Many small airports only have a single runway, but there are some pretty big single airport runways out there too. San Diego International Airport served over 22 million passengers in 2022 and over 25 million passengers in 2019 before the COVID-19 pandemic, but it's located on a relatively small piece of land and only has a single runway. London Gatwick Airport has two runways, but they're too close to each other to be used simultaneously, so the airport is a single runway airport in practice, despite serving over 32 million passengers in 2022 and over 46 million annually before the pandemic. On the other end of the spectrum, Chicago O'Hare International Airport has a whopping eight runways. Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport has seven, Amsterdam Airport Schiphol, Denver International Airport, and Detroit Metropolitan Wayne County Airport all have six. Narrow-body passenger jets such as the Boeing 737 generally need around 6,000 feet of runway or 1,800 meters. Wide-body aircraft usually need at least 8,000 feet or 2,400 meters of runway, and international airports tend to have runways that are around 10,000 feet long. Meanwhile, a small general aviation aircraft might need less than 1,000 feet. The amount of runway required for a particular flight depends on more than just the aircraft size. A fully loaded plane requires more runway length than a plane where only half the seats are filled. If you've ever been on a relatively empty flight, you may have noticed that the takeoff run was fairly short. I was once on a plane with over 100 seats, but there were only around 15 people on board, and that plane got off the ground very quickly. Planes require more distance to take off than they do to land. During landing, an aircraft just needs to touch down and slow down, whereas taking off requires generating enough speed and thrust to get the metal tube off the ground. At higher elevations and higher temperatures, more runway distance is required for taking off because the air is less dense. 
This means that there is less air to support an aircraft when it's taking off, meaning that it will require a higher speed and more distance to get off the ground. Runways at major airports are generally at least 150 feet or 45 meters wide, but many are almost 200 feet or 60 meters wide. The International Civil Aviation Organization, or ICAO, is a United Nations body that serves as a forum for various governments to coordinate international civil aviation. And one of the things that it does is publish aerodrome reference codes that help determine which aircraft can land at which airports, depending on the runway and taxiway system at each airport. Each aircraft and airport is assigned a code, and aircraft can use airports that correspond to its code or ones that are larger. The codes consist of a number and a letter. The number corresponds to the field length, and the letter corresponds to wingspan, with higher numbers and letters generally meaning longer runways and wider aircraft. A regional jet may have a code of 3B, while a wide-body Boeing 777-200 has a code of 4E. With these examples, the regional jet can use a 4E airport since it can accommodate larger aircraft, but not the other way around, since a 3B airport wouldn't be able to accommodate the Boeing 777. The largest passenger airliner in the world, the Airbus A380, has the highest possible aerodrome reference code of 4F. Episode 26 of Flying Smarter is all about the Airbus A380, so take a listen to that to learn more about the Super Jumbo if you haven't done so already. Aircraft typically take off and land into the wind in order to reduce the distance required. Runways can generally be used in both directions, so even at a single runway airport, there are two options for taking off and landing. Runways are identified with a number, and sometimes followed by a letter. The number is based on the magnetic direction of the runway. A runway facing magnetic south, for example, would have the runway number of 18, representing 180 degrees or south. Runway numbers therefore can range from 1 or 01 to 36. An aircraft taking off from runway 27 would therefore be flying roughly 270 degrees or west. Given the fact that runways can be used in both directions, each runway will have two numbers that are opposite each other on the compass. For example, the opposite end of runway 12 would be runway 30. Sometimes, an airport will have parallel runways. In this case, a letter will be added at the end of the runway number. At Vancouver International Airport, for example, there's runway 26L for 26 left and 26R for right. The other ends of the runway are 8 right and 8 left. As a side note, even though they are written like 8R or 8L, when speaking they are referred to as 8 right and 8 left. When there are three parallel runways, the letters L, C, and R are used after the numbers for left, center, and right. Chicago Air International Airport, for example, has runways 28 right, 28 center, and 28 left. Chicago Air provides another good example of what happens when there are multiple parallel runways. The airport actually has six parallel runways, but three of them have the numbers shifted by one to avoid confusion. So the airport has three runways that are each labeled 09 on one end and 27 on the other end with the letters L, R, and C afterwards, and another three runways that are labeled 10 on one end and 28 on the other end, again with left, right, and center, even though all six of these runways are actually parallel to each other. The fact that runway numbers are based on magnetic headings means that runways sometimes have to be renumbered. Earth's magnetic lines do drift slowly, meaning that the magnetic direction of a runway can change over time. 
runway numbers are designated based on the magnetic heading rounded to the nearest 10 degrees. So when the magnetic heading changes, it can mean that the number will need to be changed by 1. For example, the runways at Wichita Dwight D. Eisenhower National Airport in Kansas were renumbered in 2018. The two parallel runways, numbered 01 and 19 on either end, were renumbered to be 2 left and 20 right and 2 right and 20 left, and runway 1432 became runway 1533. These changes can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Signs need to be changed, navigational tools need to be updated, the runway numbers have to be repainted, and much more. Runways can be incredibly expensive to build and maintain, and they aren't as simple as the hard surfaces that we see on our roads. Runway surfaces have to be incredibly strong to withhold the weight of aircraft landing or taking off constantly. Commercial airports will generally have asphalt or concrete runways. The two are both made from aggregate materials such as sand and stone, but they have different binding agents. Concrete is bound together by a paste made from water and cement, while asphalt has a petroleum-based binder. Runways at smaller airports that don't have airliner traffic can have runways made of other materials, including gravel or grass. Concrete runways tend to be stronger compared to asphalt ones, but they are more expensive, crack more easily, and take more time to construct. Runway surfaces are typically grooved, and this is to help prevent hydroplaning, which is a phenomenon that can occur with any sort of tire, including car tires. Hydroplaning occurs when there is a layer of water between the tire and the surface, which leads to a loss of traction and control. The grooved surface of a runway creates more friction and allows accumulated water to flow into the grooves, allowing for aircraft tires to maintain contact with the runway surface. Runway construction is further complicated by other factors. For example, regulators typically have strict requirements on drainage. Water accumulation on the runway can be dangerous and too much moisture under a concrete surface can cause cracking or joint failure. As such, airports, including their runways, will often have complex drainage systems that include trenches, piping, and subsurface underdrains. Just like our roads, runways require constant maintenance after they are built. In addition to major rehabilitation and repair projects, and widening and lengthening projects that occur from time to time, airports also have regular maintenance responsibilities. Foreign object debris, also known as FOD, is a major hazard to aircraft. FOD is defined by the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA, as, quote, any object, live or not, located in an inappropriate location in the airport environment that has the capacity to injure airport or air carrier personnel and damage aircraft. End of quote. Objects on the runway can pose a significant safety risk, and I'm not just referring to vehicles, animals, or other aircraft that planes can run into. Debris on the runway can damage tires, airframes, or engines. As I discussed in episode 19, the supersonic Concorde had a fatal accident on July 5th, 2000 as a result of FOD. During the aircraft's takeoff roll at Parachal de Gaulle Airport, the plane struck a piece of metal that had fallen off of an aircraft that had taken off earlier. The piece of titanium damaged the tire and caused pieces of debris to fly upwards and hit the bottom of the wing, causing a fuel tank to rupture. A hundred liters of fuel started pouring out of the engine each second, creating a massive fiery trail behind the plane as it started to climb. 
The plane never reached sufficient speed to climb, and it crashed into a hotel on the ground, killing all 109 people on board and four others on the ground. Given the potentially fatal hazard posed by FOD, airports regularly conduct runway inspections for FOD and damage. For FOD and damage. FAA guidance states that the runway inspections are best conducted by driving down each side of the runway. The FAA also says that those conducting these inspections should look out for things like the state of the pavement, runway markings, signs, lighting, as well as the condition of visual and navigational aids. Major airports will typically inspect their runways multiple times a day. ICAO also has standards for runway maintenance. For example, it states that, quote, Runways should be kept clear of any loose stones or other objects that might cause damage to aircraft structures or engines or impair the operation of aircraft systems. End of quote. Regulators also set out friction requirements for runways, which can be a problem due to rubber buildup on the surface. Airports will therefore take friction measurements on runways from time to time. At airports that receive snow, snow clearing can be a massive operation. Depending on the severity of the weather conditions, Airports can operate during snow in many cases, but constant runway maintenance is required. Major airports will have well-defined sweeping and snow plowing patterns and procedures, as well as close coordination between snow clearing crew and air traffic control. In times of poor visibility, pilots will use a measure called runway visual range, or RVR. RVR refers to the distance over which a pilot on the centerline of a runway can see the surface markings. While manual measurements were once the norm, airports typically have instruments that measure RVR these days. These measurements are important for pilots conducting instrument approaches in poor visibility conditions, as these approaches typically require pilots to gain sight of the runway before a given altitude in order to proceed with the landing. I want to talk a bit about runway markings and runway lighting next. As you can probably imagine though, the podcast format isn't really the best medium to discuss runway markings, so in addition to what I'm about to share here, I'll also be posting some visuals on our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook pages over the coming two weeks. Be sure to follow Flying Smarter on social media to get those, and links to our social media profiles are in the episode description. Now, runway markings are typically white, in contrast to yellow markings on taxiways. The start or the end of the runway is known as the threshold, and these are marked with stripes that run in the direction of the runway. Known as piano keys due to their appearance, these stripes are typically around 100 feet long and 6 feet wide. The number of stripes depends on the runway width. An 18 meter or 60 foot wide runway will have 4 stripes, while a 60 meter or 200 foot wide runway will have 16 of these stripes. Next down the runway are runway numbers. Then, along the center of the runway, there is a dash center line. As is the case with runway markings, there are rules on the size and spacing between center line markings. The edge of the runway is typically marked with a solid continuous white line. On each side of the center line, runways have aiming point and touchdown zone markings. Aiming point markers provide a visual aiming point for landing aircraft and are broad white bars that are placed at around 1,000 feet from the threshold, although the exact distance varies based on the runway length. Touchdown zone markers look similar, but they're smaller, and they provide distance information in increments of 500 feet, and they identify the touchdown zone for landing. 
Runways will sometimes have what's called the displaced threshold, which exists when the marked threshold isn't actually at the start or the end of the physical piece of pavement. The space between the start of the physical pavement and the marked threshold can be used for taxiing and takeoff, but not for landing. And the reason for this is typically to give landing aircraft enough space to clear obstacles in front of the runway while allowing departing aircraft to use as much runway as possible. Displaced thresholds are marked with white arrows and I'll be sure to include a photo on social media. While runway markings are largely standardized around the world, there are some variations. For example, touchdown zone marks in the United States can consist of groups of thinner stripes, while in other places like Canada and the United Kingdom, they are a single bar. While runway markings are typically white, some runways in places like Japan, Norway, and Sweden have yellow markings to provide better contrast with snow. At night, runway lighting is very important for obvious reasons. Many of the markings that I've discussed have corresponding lights. Runway lighting is predominantly white, and runways will typically have white lights marking the center line, edges, and touchdown zones. Runway end identifier lights are placed along the width of the runway at each end. These function in an interesting way. When viewed by approaching aircraft, they are green, and when viewed from the runway by departing pilots, they are red. As is the case with runway markings, regulators have different rules about runway lighting, including the distance between lights, colors of the lights, and at what distances they need to be visible. Many airports also have approach lighting, consisting of strobe lights or bars that extend outward from the end of the runway. Runways may also have lighting systems that help guide aircraft during their approach. One of the most common types of these is a Precision Approach Path Indicator, or PAPI for short. PAPI systems consist of four lights, or set of lights, beside the runway. From a landing pilot's perspective, they will see two red lights and two white lights when their aircraft is on the designated glide slope. If the aircraft is above the glide slope or too high, pilots will see three white lights and one red light, or four white lights. On the other hand, if the aircraft is too low, pilots will see three or four red lights. As I mentioned before, I'll be sharing photos of runway markings and lighting on social media over the next two weeks to give you a visual of some of the things that were discussed in this episode. Be sure to follow Flying Smarter on social media, links are available in the episode description. That brings us to the end of this episode of Flying Smarter. Please take a minute and follow us on social media, where you'll find things like podcast updates and sneak peeks. It's also where I'll be posting pictures of things that I discussed in this episode over the next two weeks, such as runway lighting and markings, and Janet planes. Flying Smarter is on Facebook and Instagram at Flying Smarter, and on Twitter at Flying underscore Smarter. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.